Well, hello everyone, welcome. In the name of the eternal source consciousness field and first eternal life creation, we welcome you um, to our recent, and here we are again, a live stream. And we are honored, Jane and I are honored to have Leslie Manukian, a homeopath, a financial analyst, a uh, freedom fighter, a filmmaker, and uh, you could ask her more and she'll tell us more about what she's been doing, okay? Because what I found powerful with her and we're all worried about our health, our body, our, we're worried about finances, we're worried about our economic situation and just the whole thing of our existence, of our lives here we're worried and not just in United States but all over the world. So Leslie is really a good, a great person to have here and we're honored to have her so leslie thank you for coming back and i'm glad you are so much better you're hanging on with all the work that you've been doing thanks so much for having me can i just say that potentially my most important work is the work i'm doing now which is as the president and founder of health freedom defense fund so we are educating the public about their rights because most people don't realize what their rights are um, and we advocate for them and we litigate when necessary. And so we were responsible for stopping the federal travel mask mandate in the United States. Um, we won that lawsuit in April, which is now being appealed by the DOJ, Department of Justice in the United States. But um, we're pretty optimistic that the Superior Court will uphold the ruling. So that, I think, is the most important thing I've, I'm doing and have ever done. But, you know, they all work together, right? And they all build on each other. Definitely, we were so excited to hear that win. And so I'm posting it, congratulations. And this is not just a congratulations for Leslie and, uh, and David Martin, I believe, or, or anyway, with Leslie and the team that he worked with, which you've been working with. But I wanna say that it is a win for us, for people who is really protecting our civil rights. And, um, Yes, at that uh, Health Freedom Defense Org. And for those of you who haven't seen yet the, you know, remember that award-winning documentary film because she did this way before that 2020. So that's some, that tells you about Leslie. So Leslie, can you please um, update us more with what's happening on the horizon right now with you? And maybe just continue to, uh, if you wanna just, do and start with the theme of creating a better future. Sure. Um, so just for everybody who's watching, I was a um, director at Alliance Capital running, I, I managed money. So I managed their research department and I also managed portfolios for our European growth portfolios. I just want to say um, a uh, an analyst is not um, that's one of the, one tiny part of what I did. And I just think it's important for people to understand that, but you know, what's happening right now is, is really fascinating, right? I mean, it's an incredible time to be alive in so many ways. Yes, it's frightening and it's deeply concerning, but I think there's also, um, hope, you know, and I feel like there's so much opportunity, right? If in, you know, whenever you do any kind of spiritual work, you will hear in order for something new to be born, something has to die, right? That's something that we always hear, right? Or we have to peel back the layers and, you know, there's cycles and all these things and that, you know, our own personal growth is kind of evolving, but we oftentimes don't ever completely and fully eradicate deeply held patterns and wounds and things like that. We kind of spiral, but we circle back on them and they become less and less pronounced, but we keep spiraling, spiraling, and hopefully it gets narrower and narrower, meaning that we don't have such a um, major problem with them each time that the, the amplitude of each of these events is reduced. But the point is life is a, exercise in growth, in my view, and you're either growing or you're dying. There's no stasis in life. And I think it's so important to remember that at a time like this, because what we're really witnessing, in my view, is um, uh, the decline and end of um, civilization, Western civilization, right? And that's because 
we in the public who believe in Western civilization, believe in basic freedoms, believe in the right to free speech and to assembly and to petition our government and to religion and um, and believe that our children should be um, guided by their parents, not by the state or by a school and all these kinds of things, right? These are being fought and they're being fought by uh, um, the political class, essentially, the elite class. They are actually not the ones who are upholding the basic ideals that underlie Western civilization, even though the masses, for the most part, still embrace them. And yes, there's a minority who don't. But what's happening is that we're seeing that I, I've mentioned this, I think, on this program before, that there is simply no way out for the real, ruling class anymore. They have spent more than they possibly can ever repay. They've made promises in the in the form of Medicare and Medicaid and social um, programs, welfare, and also social security and things like this. And so it doesn't matter if it's the United States or Western Europe, these um, nations are in a deep um, hole. I mean, a crevasse that they are never going to climb out of. And they are actually deliberately imploding the system in the hopes that they will retain power so that when they reset the system, they will still be in control. And I don't think that's going to happen. And, and this is why I'm hopeful because yes, it's dark and it's concerning, but we get to rebuild on the other side. And so we have to just keep voicing our concerns, standing in our power and our truth, because we have seen that there's immense power in, in humans in particular when they stand together. Um, you know, the Trudeau administration had to resort to violence in order to stop the trucker convoy. Um, they they lost any moral authority they ever had when they resorted to that kind of tactic. And what we see going across on across Europe now is really inspiring, right? All these farmers who are saying, hey, this isn't okay. Um, you're going to not only put us all out of business by putting these draconian caps in place with respect to ammonia and um, nitrate, no, is it nitrogen output? Um, but you're also going to destroy the food supply. You're going to starve millions of people. And we see the same thing in, in uh, Sri Lanka, right? In the last couple of weeks, we've seen this massive uprising. And why? Because in June of, May or June of 2021, the uh, Sri Lankan government just decided that they were going to heed the guidance of the World Economic Forum and outlaw chemical-based fertilizers. Now, listen, I fully support organic, biodynamic, sustainable, healthy farming, right? But you don't just flip a switch and convert overnight. You can't do that. It has to be a gradual process over years, if not decades. And they just basically said, no more of this. And so there's a massive food crisis in Sri Lanka. There is a food shortage. There is incredible inflation. And the people finally banded together and they stormed the presidential palace and the... Uh, uh, leadership fled and they had to um, basically start the government over, right? And so this is power to the people. They weren't violent to my knowledge. They just said no more of this. We're not taking this anymore. And we're seeing the same thing from these farmers in, in Europe. And so my point is, after a long, long answer, that we stand on the brink of something beautiful and powerful and something filled with hope, which is the opportunity to actually refashion and reconstruct Western civilization in, I'd say, in sync with, in balance with the ideals that we truly hold dear and that are being destroyed by the ruling powers. So I'm really positive, even though I know that things are really challenging. And there are so many aspects to that that we can unpack, and I'd love to talk about that. But I'll stop there to see if you want to talk about that or or, um, you know, drill down on anything else? No, every word that you uttered is important. So, you know, it, it's it never too long for an answer. And it, I guess I just have to always remind myself and for the, uh, the viewers also that the founding fathers didn't just suddenly come up something more beautiful than what they've been experiencing without sacrificing things sacrificing their lives their comfort so as you as what i hear from you there 
there are things that we have to let go and to sacrifice. It's like, just like the three of us, we're all mothers. We gave birth and you can just give birth with no discomfort, with no pain. I don't know anyone, whether they had a cesarean or natural birth, there's some kind of discomfort, but mm -hmm. out of that, something beautiful comes. So Leslie, just continue your train of thought. Yeah, well, I think what's really important is to start focusing on how we um, how we survive the coming challenges and how we prepare ourselves and start thinking about the system that we want to rebuild on the other side of all of this, because the system that the ruling class envisions is not the system that I want, right? They want this, I've talked about this, this digital control grid, right? Where everything hinges on a global QR code, unique global QR code given to every individual on the planet, which is connected to the central bank digital currency, your banking records, your, your authority to work, your authority to travel. So, you know, all your identifications, everything like that, your health records, your, um, uh, you know, if you have a digital card or something like that, um, your phone, your communications, your everything, right? It's a complete control grid that will enable them to dictate how you live your life. And so if you don't get their shot or take the medication they want you to take, then they can switch off your money. Um, you won't be able to save. They will, they will have what's called programmable money, which means that you can't actually save it because it's programmed to expire after a month or two months. You're only allowed to spend X amount on meat or on uh, fuel or something like this, right? It's so many of these issues. So basically that's what they want, but that's not what we want, right? And so how do we, how do we um, push back and how do we start moving forward in the direction that we want? So I'm working on a bunch of different initiatives with some um, uh, very like-minded groups. And I think that what we need to do are you know, a, a, a variety of, of different kinds of initiatives. Number one is we need to take back our local, local government. And that means that people have to run for city council or mayor or whatever, and they've got to run for school boards. They've got to take these systems back. And if that fails, then they have to start their own school, get out of the system because the system is not about education, but indoctrination. We know this, this has been going on for a long time. And most people don't know this, but in the original discussions about the need and the desire for public school in the United States, one of the things was that was discussed was the idea that the industrial revolution had broken the bond between father and child by getting the fathers off the farms and into the cities. And that public school, would do the same with the bond between mother and child. We all think that it was this, you know, philanthropic, you know, um, altruistic initiative. But the reality is that there were certain, certainly forces that thought that it would be advisable to get the children away from the mother's um, protection and guidance and start providing that from the state and from the schools. And it's really important that people recognize that before we ever had public education in the United States, we had a 98% literacy rate. It was all private. It was all little local schoolhouses where the community came together and paid a school teacher, you know, to educate their children. And it wasn't about all the issues they're being educated about right now, like how bad our societies are. Um, it wasn't about those kinds of things. It wasn't about how, um, the, you know, that the enlightenment was, a um, didn't go far enough because they didn't adhere to today's cultural ideals. It wasn't about condemning history. It was about how we move forward. Right. And it was about educating our children to be able to read and to write and to do, um, arithmetic so that they could actually be independent. It wasn't this indoctrination, but the point is that 98% of Americans were literate before public school began. Today, I think a, a huge percentage, I forget what the number is, I read about it a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a giant number of 12 year olds who don't have basic reading and writing skills. Literally, they are not literate. 
at 12, 14, high school. They are graduating kids who don't have these basic skills. So it's not about what's good for us. But anyway, so run for public office. If your school, if you cannot take over your school, then band together with like-minded parents and create your own, right? Take your children out. Don't sacrifice them to this system. Um, paramount is food. You've got to grow your own food, do what you can to develop a local food system. And that is, that's going to be resilient, even if there's, if there is less gasoline to purchase so that it doesn't have to travel as far, right? Even if it's these things, feed yourself as much as you possibly can. You know where it came from, you know, it's healthier, you know, it's better for you. Um, and know your farmers as well. And so cultivate relationships with your local farmers. And the more you buy locally, the more it grows the local food system. So that's super important. So office, education, food, critically important, health. Now, I didn't say medicine. And I didn't say medicine because health is not does not come in a vial or in a syringe that's not where it comes from. <laughs> it doesn't come from a little pill box, right? It comes from these healthy foods and it comes from holistic medicines. And for me, chief of those health of those holistic medicines is homeopathy. I know of no medicine more powerful, more magical, and more of a threat to the pharmaceutical and par paradigm and medical complex today than harm, than homeopathy. So I urge everybody to take some kind of a beginner course, learn about it and build your own home pharmacy. Because let me tell you, it gives you freedom. It gives you independence. It gives you the ability to actually um, treat all different kinds of ailments and crises on your own without a doctor or, you know, any kind of help. It gives you freedom essentially my 19 year old son exclusively on homeopathy. I mean, we didn't go to doctors. He went to a doctor once when I was traveling in Australia and he was very sick and I'd lost my remedy kit. I didn't have any choice, <laughs> but the point is health. Okay. Homeopathy supports health. It doesn't destroy a bacteria that you have in your system. It empowers your body to heal itself from inside. It rebalances your system. That's what homeopathy does. It, 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 my husband used to get strep throat all the time. He doesn't anymore since I started treating him. He used to get it every single year practically and not anymore. He hasn't had it in years and years because homeopathy eradicates the tendency towards that and just increases health, right? So when I talk about health, I'm talking about food and nutrition, supplements if necessary, homeopathy and holistic medicine, right? You need to be getting adequate sleep. You need to get adequate exercise. You need to be, um, you know, in a fairly harmonious environment, which is way more challenging in the, in the times that we live in, but you need to meditate. You need time for yourself to get out in nature and be quiet. You need to unplug, right? There are all these things. Then there is a, a place for emergency medicine and for drugs and surgeries and setting bones and all these kinds of things. It does exist. But what I'm advocating for is to create a healthcare system that's focused on health, not on dispensing pharmaceuticals and medical procedures and products. And so that looks very, very different. And I'm working with a couple of groups on doing this. And I think this is going to actually create our independence and our freedom to a very, very large part. So to me, the most important piece of it is homeopathy, but of course, naturopathy, which is, you know, kind of all the, the catch all for all holistic medicines, acupuncture and chiropractic and midwifery and doulas and all these things play a role. The point is that I think we should be building fully integrated health systems where when a person is sick or has an ailment, they come and they get addressed by one of these other ancient healing arts unless it's an emergency and unless it's there's no other option or those other options have been exhausted, right? We don't start with a drug. We only use an antibiotic if we get to that place, right? Let's say someone has a kidney infection or something like that, or a bladder infection. You treat it holistically. And if you can't 
eradicate it. If you can't treat it or deal with it, then you go to home, to to antibiotics. But they should be the, the the last resort, not the first resort. And that's the problem with our system. It's upside down, right? So, um, health, education, health and medicine, education, local governance, food, water, um, defense, self defense. That's not so true. So true. So true. Um, in my mind, I always have to tell myself, even before the pandemic, that I have to be equipped in all angles so that, like, okay, primarily because my body, my health is my 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 foundation to do many things. So to but, do everything, right? Right. So I can't end up in a in a system that I'm already doubtful that I, I can see already, even if I'm a nurse, I can see that's not for me. <laughs> okay. So I said, so yeah. And earlier, Jane and I were talking about an embryo. So I was thinking for all of those, for all other people watching or listening, just learn many of these kind of modalities and find your way that really you'll be confident to use it as a first aid. And yeah, Jane and I will, Jane will talk more about homeopath with you because you'll have a good time. But I said, I can imagine someone's medic medicine cabinet in the bathroom to have all of that. And yeah, well, and, and just at least in New Jersey, where I am, I see many mothers, fathers who are stepping up, running for positions, doing this, doing that, creating. But one question for you, Leslie, before I give it to Jane, pass it on to Jane, is that the, the topic of uh, having uh, taking the kids out of school is always like a sensitive topic for mothers who have children who are challenged. I, didn't, I don't know the details of their child, but it gives them a, let's just say that gives them a break, I believe, that mm -hmm. you know they can be somewhere. Is it just because one really got so upset when we were in one of the Zoom meetings? What's the best advice for them? Um, that's a really, really important issue to address. So I'm so glad it came up. I'm not saying take your children out and homeschool them by yourself. I'm saying create a community where parents share or where they come together and they hire a teacher to do this for them, someone that they trust and respect and who will build a serious bond with their children. Now, special needs kids, listen, this is, this is a major issue. And I don't know if you guys have discussed this on the show, but the latest statistics show that one in 30 American children are on the autism spectrum mm. and one in 20 boys, one in 20 boys, that's 5% of all boys in America are on the spectrum. So there are a lot of kids out there. And I would hope that if you could come together with others in your community, I think the other thing is people have to move. If you're in a community that doesn't support these kinds of things, you need to move to a place that does. You need to move to a place where homeschooling, not meaning by yourself. I had an only child. I would have loved to homeschool him, but he was super social and he was an only child. And homeschooling would have been torture for that poor kid. So I put him in Montessori, which I felt was far more consistent with my beliefs and how I did things. And I had a lot of influence there. I had friends who were teachers there, right? You can put them in different kinds of schools or you build that in your own community. I'm not saying that you have to do it on your own. And if there are other kids who are special needs, maybe you can you can group together with other parents who have special needs kids to help them um, so that you do get a break or that the kids are all at one house one day and then another house another day or something like that, you know? With 5% of boys being on the spectrum, they're out there. They're out there. And I think actually it would do us all a huge favor if those children weren't hidden away in a school, but were actually out seen in our communities more because it's not readily visible to most people in our community, how many of those kids there really truly are. And so, you know, this would actually bring more of the community involved rather than less, rather than having them be, um, 
you know, educated and cared for by a state run entity. That's my view. You know, I should talk to my friends because obviously having made the greater good, uh, um, the first kind of feature documentary on vaccines, I have a a huge number of friends and contacts in the um, autism community. And I have friends who have children who's 25 year old, they're 25 and they're still in diapers. They're nonverbal. They are, they will be dependent for the rest of their lives. And, you know, it's not an easy answer. That's all there is to it. And I am not the best equipped to answer it. I would really, it'd be best for me to talk to my friends and maybe come back to you on that. Or, you know, I think it's, it's a huge, huge issue. And I think the best thing to do is to involve as many other parents of um, special needs kids into that decision and that support system. Thank you, Leslie. We appreciate everything that you do. And we do want to continue to be in touch with you, whatever you're doing. And yeah, for the audience and viewers, yeah, because the solutions are there. It just takes time and uh, diligence to commit to what we want for a better future. So that's it. And, and, and Grace, you are so right. It takes sacrifice, right? During the 50s and 60s, families survived easily. 70s, 80s even, families survived on one income. Nowadays, it's two incomes. Now, I fully support women having the right to to work and choose and decide whatever they want in their lives, what they want in their lives. But I am a perfect example that um, you can't have it all. I'm sorry, but you know, I was traveling 100,000 miles a year. I was working 60, 80 hours a week before I got pregnant, when I was pregnant, actually got pregnant. And I decided that even though I had this fantastic career and I was at the top of my career, that I couldn't be the mother that I wanted to be living that life. Sure, I was being very well, you know, remunerated for what I did and I had place and position and, you know, prestige, but that wasn't what I wanted. And there was no way that I could live that job, live, live that, have that job and live that life and be the mother that I wanted to be. It's just not possible. You can't work 70 or 80 hours a week and be the mother that I wanted to be. It's just not possible. So I chose my son and you know what? I don't regret it, regret it for a single second. And in the same way, we have to choose Do you want a new ATV or a boat or whatever new toy, a new iPhone, right? Or do you want that money to go to educating your kid? Do you want, you know, a bigger house, a new car, or do you want to come together in your community and develop resilience? We have to make choices. And frankly, I think part of the reason that we are in the situation that we are in is because we have become very fat and happy and apathetic in America. And I'm saying that, you know, philosophically, although it is also true physically, right? I mean, there are a lot of overweight Americans, Um, but we've also gotten sick. And the more sick we are, the more uneducated we are, the more uninformed we are, the less able we are to actually have the vitality and vibrancy to inform ourselves, to stand up, to defend ourselves, to fight back, to say no. My point is that we have disengaged over the past century and allowed all sorts of unconstitutional laws to be passed and, um, you know, um, our culture to be culture to be seriously um, undermined and um, and twisted into ways that were never envisioned by our founding fathers and that most of us still don't embrace. And so you know, we have to re-engage and we have to make the sacrifices necessary to do that. And it's going to require sacrifice for all of us. My husband, it's our anniversary today. <laughs> and he Happy wanted anniversary. To, thank you so much. He wanted to get me a new ring. And I said to him this morning, he said, you know, we could have, you know, this friend of ours who's a jeweler come over and we could have dinner and design it or something. And I just thought, you know, I'd rather put that money towards food storage and, and making a difference and um, 
taking care of ourselves, building a, uh, improving our vegetable garden or something like that, you know? And okay, sure. It'd be nice to have a new shiny bobble, but we have to focus on what's really important. Where are our priorities? Thank you, uh, Jane. Hey, Leslie. I Hi. love what I love what you're saying. And uh, the big thing is, we've been programmed to disengage, haven't we? Give away our power to a doctor, government, uh, grocery store, and many of us are are completely at the mercy of so many things that we think are more intelligent, greater than us. And I think that's, to me, that's the biggest lesson in what's happening now. And I've seen, I've seen people become aware of this and they weren't really aware before. So this is like what you were saying, it's a good thing in some ways. And, you know, the billions of dollars that the pharmaceutical industry has pumped into government and controlling our thoughts and, you know, our, our first moves, even as babies, what we were putting into our children. And just before this all broke out, I was like, yay, there's men's talking in parliament about autism and the effects of this, you know, childhood vaccines that have become, there's like so many given to children that people are so unaware. I was given one when I was a child. And now it's like, how many? 45 at least. And one in 20 boys getting autism. And <laughs> so, yeah. And, and then I immediately went, well, why am I not afraid of what's happening? Why do I know this is all about forced jabs and the pharmaceutical companies making billions more? Why do I know this and I'm not afraid? And I was like, it's because of my education as a naturopathic doctor and then as a homeopath and seeing the, the signs and the years of, uh, you know, homeopathy being attempted to be put out of business because it's so powerful, right? And so I immediately wrote a small book that's called Jane's Empowered Handbook, 17 Homeopathic Remedies and 12 Cell Salts. And I thought even if people just start to learn with this little handbook and uh, yeah. <laughs> then they become more empowered. But yeah, let's, let's just, so I don't know where to go. Is it? So when, when I was becoming a homeopath, I thought that maybe there's a safer way to vaccinate children, right? To give the no-sodes to children. And because we knew that the vaccines were causing autism and, um, other health problems. But by the time I was done my, my thesis, I realized that illness serves a really good purpose. And it's much better to get the illness, update your immune system, and then treat it with something natural if you're having trouble coming out of it. And so my whole paradigm shifted and even though I was becoming a homeopath uh, in that moment, realizing that that's not our enemy, it's actually a gift. So anyway, can you carry on from that? <laughs> well, let, me, let me just clarify. So first of all, fantastic. Kudos to you for writing this book. It's great. That's great. Um, when you said giving the no-sodes, do you mean homeoprophylaxis? Or yeah, do you mean, okay. yeah. homeoprophylaxis. Right. And, yeah. and I real, yeah, realizing that illness wasn't our enemy it, tra it, it actually has, um, it trains the immune system. It shows that children become more intelligent when they have, after a high fever and measles, that we've been programmed to think that it's our enemy. Well, listen, I mean, <laughs> when I was growing up, we never had anything antibacterial in our home. We never sprayed the counters. We never, whatever, right? When I moved to, I moved to England in 1995 and lived there for 10 years. And I remember a family member would detox. They had something called detox, which I think is the equivalent of Lysol essentially in the United States. And they would spray it on the counters. 
after cooking and cleaning and stuff. And I was just like, what? I mean, it smelled just horrific to me, but I mean, this whole thing, right? We have been told that bugs are our enemy, that we need to kill the bugs. That's what anti-antibiotics are. Anti meaning against, biotic meaning life, biota, right? Antibiotics kill something that's alive, right? And it used to be, this goes way, way back, right? I don't know what you learned in your homeopathic training, but we um, learned the myth of germ theory. So um, <laughs> for all of our listeners, back in the day when Pasteur um, was around, he was, he was pontificating that bugs caused all of these diseases. Okay. But there was another body of thought that said, no, 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 no. It's not the bug that causes the disease. It's the terrain. And um, I never know if I say it right. I think it's Beauchamp. Beauchamp. I don't know how to say it, but he was basically one of his um, contemporaries, but he was fighting back and there was this big fight. And then the, the, the story goes that on his deathbed or near his deathbed, Pasteur recanted and said, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's not the bug. It's the terrain. And we know this. If you put um, a, you know, a culture of something in a Petri dish and you add sugar to it, the pathogenic bugs will take over and destroy the homeostasis. And if you remove the sugar as a source of food, then the system will rebalance itself. Now, why is this? It's because life is a self-balancing mechanism. It is. That's what life is, right? And so we used to think that the bugs, we just kill all the bugs and everything will be peachy. And what we see is that we kill the bugs and we make stronger bugs, right? Which is the same thing that's happening with these jabs that they're putting out, right? That it's causing these these mutations into new variants, right? Um, but the same thing um, happens with antibiotics and other things. Whereas all you have to do, and let me actually take a step back. So it used to be believed that it was all outside of us and that if we just killed all the bugs then everything would be good. But the truth is those bugs are all inside of us, right? 10% of us carry meningitis in the back of our throats. Roughly a third of us have staph on our skin. A percentage of us have strep everywhere, right? These bugs are everywhere. You can never sterilize yourself. We used to think that the um, amniotic sac, that the womb, you know, inside the amniotic sac was sterile. Not true. Anyway, the point is that we used to believe all these things. And now what we understand is that there are more um, micro microbes in and on the human body than there are cells in the human body. Over 10 trillion. And what is the marker of health is the balance between the so-called good and bad. And that there are these supposedly pathogenic or bad bacteria. And the thinking is that if you stay at about 80% good and no more than 20% bad, that the good will overwhelm the bad. The problem is, do you eat a lot of sugar? Do you eat um, a lot of industrial commercial oils, which you do every time you eat out in a restaurant because that's all they use? Do you eat processed foods and things like that? Do you have a lot of stress? Do you not sleep? Do you not exercise, right? All of these things actually keep the good bugs robust and those in turn keep the supposed bad ones in check. And so that's one aspect of it. But the bigger aspect of it that you just mentioned, Jane, that is so very important is that yes, we know that children have developmental leaps when they get illness. Okay. We know this. Um, parents have observed it. Physicians have observed this for decades, if not centuries. We also know that these illnesses are actually beneficial in lots of ways, other than um, developmental leaps. There are people who have been cured of cancer by getting a case of the measles. Measles is protective against cancer. Many of these diseases are now known to be protective against cancer and other autoimmune diseases and inflammatory conditions. Why would we want to avoid something that actually helps our immune system to become so much stronger that it can protect us against cancer, autoimmune disease, and inflammatory conditions? Why would we want that? And is that the reason that more than half of all American school children today, and I'm only saying American, not to exclude the rest of the world, but because I know the data for them, 
that more than half of American school kids, 54% have a chronic illness or developmental disability. Why would you want that? Why is that better than chicken pox that doesn't hurt literally anybody, right? It's statistically zero danger. Now that doesn't mean that there's never a child who dies from it. And of course I don't want any child to die from any illness, but people die every day. It's incredibly sad. Children die even. They come in with different kinds of maladies and congenital issues, and they are at greater risk to everything. It doesn't mean that you then go and damage the immune systems of every other child on the planet in order to somehow protect that one child, number one, or as a justification for um, damaging all of their immune systems, right? It's, it's, it's nonsense. And the, the um, global health authorities, the American health authorities in particular, have said that they won't do the research to determine what exactly vaccines do to kids. They don't want to know what the true numbers are of how much more asthma is there is in the vaccinated than the, un than the unvaccinated, how much more allergies, diabetes, cancer, all these things. And we know from some small independent studies that have been done comparing vaccinated to unvaccinated kids that the numbers are astronomical. Asthma is about 30 times as common in the vaccinated as compared to the unvaccinated. Would you rather have vax asthma for life or even the measles, which is benign in a, um, in a healthy child? And the thing is, you know, we're told that um, measles was this huge killer and that if we weren't um, vaccinating for it, that tons and tons of people would be dead. Here's the truth. Do you guys have, let's just, in the United States, in the early two decades of the 20th century, so the 1910s and then the 1920s, sorry, the knots and then the tens, guess how many people died in America every single year from measles? Take a wild guess. Country of, say, 150 million people. I'm not sure what the population was, but somewhere around there. 100, 110, 20, 30 million people. Guess how many people died every year from the measles? Less than 100? No, it was actually decent then. It was 10 to 20,000. Okay. The vaccine was not introduced until 1963. In the five years preceding that, guess how many children died each year in the United States from measles. Before the vaccine. Before the vaccine, but the five years on average before the vaccine. So we'd had public health measures, all these things. So in the early part of the 20th century, yes, people were dying from disease, but we know it was not because of vaccines. It was because of health, hygiene, hygiene, sanitation, getting the sewage out of the streets, all these things. And so I'm trying to illustrate that to you. So we went yeah. from 10 to 20,000, guess to, guess to how many deaths there were in 19... 58, 59, 60, 61, and 62, on average across the entire United States before they rolled out the vaccine. I, I know 430. that- 430. Yeah, yeah. A few hundred. Listen, again, no, none of us want a child to die. But 430 deaths out of, I mean, that's crazy, right? Today, 5,000 people, innocent pedestrians walking down the street and are hit and killed by cars. Yeah. There are something like 35 or 40,000 deaths in automobile accidents. Do we get rid of cars? And right. And like, if you go back and you were just, let's just say, if the population was 40% of what it is today, or even a 30%, let's just say it was 110 million. So that would be 10,000 deaths from automobiles. 430. Do you understand my point? Like oh, it was- it is so tiny. There was yeah. zero justification for this. So there is no way that they can tell us that it was for health. Now they will argue, well, there were children who were brain damaged. There were, but it was extremely rare. In a well-nourished child, it doesn't happen. And the yeah. real issue is if you're vitamin A deficient, that's what it comes down to. So, you know, I'm a hundred percent with you, Jane, that this is, we are, this is a completely and utterly misguided war. We should be bolstering our microbiota. We should actually allow ourselves to get these illnesses. And if we don't get them, then I think we actually should use homeoprophylaxis because it helps, I believe, train the immune system, which is right. what I mean to my that's, son. That's I the one time. Could, 
But yeah. you know, there's a lot of the stuff is so suppressed you don't see it anymore. Yeah. When when they can't even get the natural yeah. disease, and that's the time to use it. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't even know if it's gone. I think it's just suppressed. So there's measles-like illnesses that are just not called measles, right? There are all these different kinds of diseases. We now call it non-acute polio, uh, non-polio acute flaccid myelitis. There are all sorts of conditions that we are very, oh, very similar, right? They, they just rename them. Yes. Yeah. So they re redefine them. That's what they did yeah. with polio in order, order to make the polio vaccine look like it was successful. It was, yeah. it's a farce. It was not successful. It was not. They just redefined it. Yeah. And they changed the diagnostic criteria. Yeah. Um, so this happens over and over and over again. And, um, you know, I think that actually that these diseases are actually around, but in a different guise. Like, I don't think that they have the same appearance anymore because our immune systems are compromised. And we like as, as homeopaths, we know that a high fever is a good thing, right? It's a sign of vitality, vitality. Exactly. <laughs> My son he was a cesarean and I was vaccine injured and I was, I had heavy metals, which I did not really get out of my system until I did um, um, IV chelation about three or four years ago. It actually, that saved my life, that in homeopathy. But my point is that he had all this stuff in him. And so I've been working on him his whole life to get him really robust. And he was sick this winter and he spiked a fever of 104. And it was the first time he had ever done that ever in his life. And I was and like, you were like <laughs> I know even, I so someone, even someone older that can mount a fever. You're like, yes, this is so, so positive. It is. It was really good. I was really happy. So folks, and unless... So yeah. And Leslie, I want to, I just want you to jump into something that most don't realize and that we do carry these bugs all the time, that they are part of our environment, that it is the terrain that keeps them in check. But when we get into a mental emotional state, that's when our immune system will crash and that's when they could flourish. So that's like why homeopathy is so powerful because it addresses that mental emotional state. Let me tell you a story about that. So um, I, when 9-11 happened, I lived in London and I was, um, um, this was right when I was learning homeopathy. And I was stunned because that happened. And what, what happened, right? We were constantly being shown the images on the television 24 seven over and over and over and over almost as though somebody really wanted to scare you and much, you. much like what's happening today, right? Exactly. Over exactly. Over. They were installing a fear or a trauma program in the psyche of the entire population, which could then be reactivated with another major event. Um, shock and awe, right? This is what they're doing, but what happened, and this is why I'm bringing it up, which was so interesting to me was that, Everybody in 70% of the people in my office were sick within three days. It's early September. It's not time to get sick. What happened? Shock, fear, anxiety, all of these things, right? And I was supposed to fly at the end of actually, I think it was October 1st or 2nd. My husband and I were supposed to fly to the States to one of my dear friend's weddings and I started to get sick right before I got on the plane. Literally, I woke up in the morning and I was like, because I was anxious. And I called the, I was living in England. I called the homeopathic hotline. They have a helpline there that you can call them and they just charge you by the amount that it costs on the phone to call in. And they told me the remedies to take. Gelsamium, never been well since a shock or a trauma and aconite, which is all about fear, whatever. By the time we landed in the States, I was 100%. You know, it was completely about the, even though I wasn't, didn't realize consciously that I was afraid of flying during that period, I, I was. And as soon as I took those remedies, I mean, I just felt so much better and I landed and I was fine and I was never sick from then on. And it was completely because of all that had happened in the preceding three weeks, you know? So people don't realize this, but shock, fear, trauma, whatever, anger, lots of these things, they can actually, they all have a protein associated with them. And they actually can change us physiologically as well, right? That we actually develop more receptors in our cells for every single one of these emotions that we live in. So like if you live in a 
in a frightening um, environment, then you will develop more receptors on your cells for the proteins associated with those. So you actually become a fearful person in some ways physiologically, but homeopathy can help to address that by shifting the balance and um, getting you back to a healthy place of homeostasis. It's amazing. It's remarkable. I cannot speak enough about it. And I have to tell you, I mean, you'll love this, Jane. My son's 19. He's in um, Mexico right now with 12 friends, 11 friends. He has his little homeopathic kit, but he also has a bag of homeopathic remedies that I give to him in higher potencies and for different things that aren't in there. Um, he's very active. So a lot of them are injuries and things like that. But anyway, he takes his, he didn't ask me. I didn't even, I didn't tell him, but he texted me. He's like, mom, I spent too much time in the sun today. What should I take? And I said, do you just have your bag of tricks or do you have your kit as well? And I said, you know, I don't know what you have, but these are the three remedies. Belladonna, Cantharis, Sol. If you don't have Sol with you, try the Cantharis first. And if you have a headache, then try the Belladonna. So he took the Cantharis and it felt good. He's like, oh, I have both with me. The point is, I didn't tell him to take his remedies with him. He just did because he knows the power of them. He knows it so well. And he's got his constitutional in there and things like that. And it's just, this is where we want to get. You don't need drugs. <laughs> you don't. It's no. so empowering. And, and so fast acting. So our, fast acting, yeah, so liberating. Our Sednicom is a great one to take when you're traveling. Yeah, he has <laughs> that. Poisoning. Yeah. He, so. he told me that he had a little bit of, what do they call it? You know, um, there's a, I forget what it is. They have a, 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 some name for it in Mexico, but he said that he had a little bit. And I said, Montezuma. Yeah. 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 My favorite story is when I was learning to become a homeopath and this, this story changed my husband who was a, a skeptic, right? Because uh, he watched the whole thing. My chat, one of my girls had a really bad cough and I tried all the polycrests of homeopathy, right? Like the spongia and all the remedies and nothing happened. Uh, Sarah. Drosera continued to cough and cough and cough. And it wasn't until I put her on my knee and found out she was very sad about something that happened at school. And then I knew to give her Ignatia and it cured her cough instantly, never to return. And my husband heard it happen. And he's like, okay, I'm a believer. I have to tell you what happened with my son. He was a year old and he'd never been sick. Essentially. He was, I mean, I breastfed him until he was 14 months or something like that, 13 or 14 months. And he hadn't been sick. Like, I mean, a sniffle, but not like a sick, sick. Right. So he is sick and he is sick for three days. And it's my second year in homeopathy school. And I'm trying anything and everything. And I can't, I'm like, nothing's working. I'm like, and I don't know what's wrong. And he's only a year old and he can't tell me and all this. And my husband's like, that's it. We're taking him to the, you know, we're taking him to the pediatrician. And so we go and we had this lovely French pediatrician who was super open-minded. I'd actually given him a, vac a book on vaccines called vaccines. Are they really safe and effective? And he read it. He read it. And whenever he would see a child, he would, then he, he knew what was going on. He was like, so it, I think it really changed his view. But anyway, so I take him in and we lay him down on the table and he, you know, puts a um, tongue depressor in his back of his mouth. He says, oh, Mrs. Bradshaw, no wonder he's so upset. My name was Bradshaw back then. Um, no wonder he's under so much distress. He has ulcers in the back of his throat. And I was like, oh, I know what to do. And, my, and he's like, let me, I'll write you a um, prescription for antibiotics. And my husband was like, we're going to get the antibiotics. We're getting them. And I said, okay, let's go and get the antibiotics but now I know what it is. So let, let's not give them to him. Let's just go home and see if they work. He's one years old. He's sitting there one year old. He's in my husband's arms. You know, he's cradling him like this. He's just like <laughs> screaming. I mean, he's so distressed and just really out of it. Not like alternately listless and crying. Right. And he's just screaming, crying in such pain. And I put one pill of mercury <laughs> I was going to say mercury. <laughs> yeah. One pill of mercury into the my little cap of my my um, remedy bottle, and my husband's holding him, and I literally drop it in his mouth, and he opens his eyes and stops screaming, and he's just like, "Like what happened?" And my husband's like, "What just happened?" You know, he couldn't believe it it was so profound it was um and then so, 
his fever, his like not that the ulcers went away, but the pain, yeah, the, yeah. Pain, the distress dissipated and he was fine and he healed. That was it. Right. And that was just like, holy cow. Now quick, just explain to people why mercury okay in homeopathic form and what it would do if it was in crude form and why it works. Right. So mercury causes ulceration (laughs) amongst lots of other things, but it, you know, it causes um, uh, mental, emotional issues. It causes lots and lots of other problems. But one of the big things it causes is ulceration. And so homeopathy is based on the idea that like treats like. So what you want to do is what the substance or the crude form of it causes, the homeopathic form, which is an ultra dilution where there's nothing left except the energetic imprint essentially of the remedy will cure. So basically like, you know, hay fever, a good remedy for hay fever is onion because what do onions do when you chop them? You sneeze, your eyes burn, whatever, you know, it's like treats like. So what the physical or crude substance causes the homeopathic remedy will oftentimes cure. Not always exactly like that, but yeah, it can be literally that magical. I had a, a child that had um, eczema from his neck down and his mother was like, well, I don't know what's wrong and everything's fine. And he had a normal birth and all this. Well, it turns out that he'd been induced and then got stuck in the birth canal and had to be vontused and forcept out. And he had bruising and... <laughs> scabs on his skull. And, um, I, um, um, I, uh, um, I just thought, well, gosh, she's stuck in birth trauma. I'm going to have to, um, um, I think I'll just give him a really, really high potency of Arnica. So I gave him an Arnica 50 M. I never heard from them for six months. And then I asked my husband to ask the guy, cause he worked with a man and he came home and he's like, you won't believe this. It was all gone totally gone within 36 hours, 48 hours. He was totally fine. No more eczema. And he'd had it for seven or eight months, I think six, seven, eight months, literally from about a week after birth from his neck down. So all that he was stuck in, in my mind was birth trauma. Again, mental, emotional issue, right? Not physical. Yeah. No drugs going to fix that. Right. It's so beautiful. And we've seen such countless cases that we believe in it. So like I am a hundred and if you say out of a hundred, 150% believe in it, but they can discount it so easily because people don't understand. You have to match the person to the remedy. A hundred percent. Don't nothing happens, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the point we're trying to make in the remedies that we missed because we didn't know exactly what was going on or we didn't exactly. understand the mental emotional. Yeah. So guys, I am supposed to go. I have something in eight minutes, but I see that you've just joined Hartman. So do you maybe want to ask me one quick question and then I'll sign off? Thank I'm so you so sorry. much, Leslie. I, I just enjoyed that so much. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Listen, folks, please, I beseech you, learn homeopathy. It's not hard and it is freedom in a little tiny bottle of pills or drops. I cannot tell, I can't emphasize it enough. It costs $7 and probably will last you at least five years, yeah. <laughs> if not 10. Yeah. It's a pleasure. I'm sorry. I had so much problems with my computer, but now everything I fixed within one hour. So I'm sorry for this being late. But um, it's, a, it's a very pleasure to have you here on the show because my um, yeah, my lady, my wife, she is also a doctor for homeopathy. Oh, Yes, and she has um, created natural medicine. And um, what I would like to ask you, um, you have homeopathy and you have biological resonance therapy. Do you see it's a correlation or do you see it as, um, yeah, how do you see these both um, treatments in comparison to each other? First of all, I have to say, I don't know that I'm educated enough about bioresonance to actually, you know, compare and contrast the two. What I would say is that um, bioresonance is, I don't think it's as unique or as specific as homeopathy. You know, we have thousands and thousands of remedies, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think they probably work on similar principles, perhaps in some way. But Mm -hmm. homeopathy is so unique and so specific that when you get that one right remedy, it can just be magic. It can just completely change everything, you know? And I've never had that experience with bioresonance. I have had bioresonance 
help me. I've had it had an impact on me. I've had it calm my nervous system and do different things, but I haven't had it do the kind of things that homeopathy can. So um, I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think the other thing that's so important to understand is that there's a place for everything, right? I mean, my husband broke his ankle very, very badly at one point, and I gave him all sorts of remedies and the bruising and the swelling and stuff wouldn't go away. An acupuncturist and the, and the movement wouldn't work. An acupuncturist stuck the needle in and he was able to move his foot 30 degrees more than he had beforehand. You know, listen, we no one healing modality is right for as anything and everything. There's no one thing for everything. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's the case. And that doesn't mean that homeopathy is not the most powerful medicine on the planet. I fully believe that. And it's not the most magical. I fully believe that. It's just that there may be times when there's something, I mean, listen, if you break your arm, I'm not going to just take homeopathy and do nothing. I'm going to set it properly and then take homeopathy, right? So I yeah. think we have to be wise about all these things. If I get a concussion, I'm taking homeopathy. But you know what? If I've got like swelling and bleeding on the brain, I might want to know about that and drain it or treat it, you know? Understood. So I think that they really just go together and work together. I think that it's about the synergy in all of these things and finding what's best. I use essential oils in my house. I have, um, because of my own vaccine injury 30 years ago, I still have some major, some major issues. They're getting better and better, but... Um, I use essential oils on my legs because I'm really susceptible to um, extreme exercise fatigue. And it's not just fatigue. It's like worse than that. But the essential oils really calm the inflammation down and calm it down. And better than anything I've found homeopathically to help it. So I use that, right? There may be herbs or something. I don't know. They're different things. One thing I also want to say about homeopathy is that it's so important that people understand it's not just about physical ailments. It's really important that at the top of the hierarchy of symptoms are the mental and emotional aspects. And I have seen in my own practice, although I don't really practice anymore, but I've seen in my own practice, women come to me with anger issues. And they say that it saved their marriage, giving them a remedy. Jane, you'll appreciate this. Staphysagria all went away. Um, anger issues. I've treated people for anxiety and, you know, just panic attacks and anxiety and just general kind of like fearfulness, right? I have people I've given remedies who can't fly on the airplane and then they can now. And, um, you know, I mean, it's really, really important that people understand it's not just physical stuff. Mental, emotional stuff is actually at the peak of the pyramid and the most important. And I believe that, the, the mental, emotional, and spiritual state of our being actually informs the physical, that there's a connection and that it actually manifests in the physical. And then once you deal with whatever a lot of that mental, emotional stuff is, then the physical shifts. Interesting, because I think, for example, um, let's say maybe this is, this is male thinking, but I think a lot of in hormones. And the problem is that the, that the hormone production, because... Um, the, we need a lot of nutritions. The, let's say the, the cells get um, um, tired. They don't produce so much energy anymore, the mitochondria, because we don't get the en enough energy by the food. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is that all our hormone production is reduced in But many, many aspects. Can I just, first of all, I have to interrupt because I have to leave in literally okay. one minute. And secondly, because okay. I want to say this, what happens to your blood sugar level and your insulin when you're anxious? Your, your liver dumps sugar into your blood. Your blood sugar goes up and then your pancreas produces insulin to bring it down. My point is that the mental emotional aspect can be the trigger very often. Not always. That's why all of these health, you weren't here for it, but health is a multifaceted um, experience, right? It's mental, it's emotional, it's physical, it's dependent on sleep, on lack of stress, on exercise, on happiness and getting out and being in nature and all these things. And so I think it's, there's a, the, the mental emotional actually is very often the trigger for what we're seeing hormonally.
I'm so sorry, you guys. I have to go. Thank you so much for having me. It was me. a pleasure. I truly thank appreciate you too. It. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and do take care of yourself and we'll see you again next time. Sounds great. Thank you so much, you guys. Bye-bye. And thanks to everyone. And uh, I'm glad Hartmut was able to join us. And if any of you has any kind of reflection, and I, I believe Hartmut, you might have heard our conversations when you were fixing your computer, but it this is beautiful Hartmut because yesterday Jane and I had this conversation one-on-one -on -one, and now we just kind of <laughs> added to this conversation. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. It's really fun. So please um, uh, follow us and when it will be in the Bitchute and uh, Rumble and, and Earth Heroes TV and all the audio platforms among the three of us as well. And do take care of yourself and go, go, try, try, get, get Jane's book, okay? So, because then it's a good handbook. It says handbook. That means easy. There. Okay. <laughs> that means easy. <laughs> <laughs> take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.